Amen. Well, good morning. We are starting a new series today in the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, you want to take that out. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. There's also an outline in your program. If you want to pull that out in case anybody's looking at that and thinking, oh man, it's going to be a long sermon. There's eight points. All right. I got to say, I got a little ambitious earlier this week. And so uh, we're, we're just going to make it through the first three points. All right. So uh, don't worry. We'll be all right. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We're calling this uh, a crash course in Christianity, this particular series. I I wonder if you're like me, do you ever wonder why you do what you do? Uh, Maybe you have one of those moments, say you're out shopping for something like, I don't know, a coat, and and all of a sudden you think, what am I doing here? I have like 15 coats crammed into the closet at home, and I wear like two of them. I probably need to take at least half of them down to St. Vinny's or the mission or something. What am I doing here? What need am I trying to fill by buying something that I really don't need at all? I don't know. Am I the only one, only one that has those kind of moments? Uh, maybe, maybe here's another example. You walk away from a conversation in, in which you thought, oh, I, I've got to critique someone on their performance or, or their decision or, or something they said. Maybe you didn't agree with, with their choice. And, and so you just kind of maybe knocked them down a couple of notches through your conversation. And then you walked away thinking, what was that about? What, what in me could possibly need to lower someone else in order to maybe boost myself a little bit? I, I don't need to do that. Have you, have you ever found yourself, you know, unnecessarily animated in a conversation. Maybe you're in a, a living room or the break room at work or someone isn't, isn't hearing your point and you find your energy level starts going up, your pulse starts going a little quicker, your blood pressure is rising and you find yourself insisting, no, 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 you're not understanding me. And then later you think, what, what was so life and death about that situation? Why did I do what I do? Why did I say what I said? Why do I insist on being heard and understood and agreed with all the time? Do you ever just find yourself asking yourself, why do I do what I do? Now, I don't want to be too overly simplistic, but I'm going to propose that often we do what we do because we think what we think. Does that make sense? So today, we're going to look at something uh, called the power of identity. If we understand at our core what God does for us and in us, if we can comprehend that on a deeper level, some of the attitude shifts that we desire that would happen at a more uh, quicker or more satisfactory level in our lives would would take place if we can understand this identity issue. Our problem is we often focus on the behavior rather than the core of our identity. So that's what I want to talk with you about this morning, and I'll explain that a little bit more as we go along. Now, as I mentioned, we're starting a new series this morning, and it's going to take us through the New Testament letter 
from Paul to the Ephesians. And we're calling this series A Crash Course in Christianity. We're going to see that Ephesians covers the, the basics of our Christian faith. God's plan in Jesus for all of humanity, the essence of the gospel, relationships inside the church, living for Christ in the world today, spiritual conflict and prayer, and most importantly, our identity in Christ. Should we choose to follow God's plan for our life? And so this, this book of Ephesians really is a crash course in Christianity with Paul. And so if you've been a, a Christian for a while, then these core truths will be great for you to share with your family or friends who don't know Jesus. If you are newer to the faith, then you'll find these key teachings from Ephesians, from Paul, valuable in establishing a strong foundation for your faith. And if you're still exploring the Bible and Christianity or have questions about Jesus or faith or, or God's purpose for you, then this letter will certainly help you to have a clearer understanding of God's plan for people. So I want to spend a little bit of time just giving you some background about Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, where Paul wrote this letter to. Paul spent uh, about seven, uh, this letter was written about seven years after Paul established the church in Ephesus. Paul, Paul had spent about two years there in Ephesus early in his ministry, and he knew the people there well. He knew that church well. And so Fast forward seven years, Paul now is under house arrest in Rome, and he begins to write letters, letters to some of the churches that he's been a part of, some of the churches he planted. None of them had he spent so much time as he did at Ephesus. And so he writes this letter to the Ephesians during his time of incarceration. Now, Ephesians was written, we think, somewhere around 61 AD. They never know those dates exactly, but it's about 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And Paul has written to some people in and around the city of Ephesus. On a, on a map, you would locate Ephesus along the coast of the Aegean Sea. Today, we would say it's where uh, western Turkey is. And if you were to stroll, if you could, through the city of Ephesus there in the first century, you would find several huge structures. One of the structures, the most famous one of all, was the Temple of Artemis, also called the Temple of Diana, because some of these goddesses and gods went by both Greek and Roman names. This temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The footprint of the temple, just the building itself, was about the size of a football field. It had 127 60-foot marble pillars. It may have been the largest building in the world when it was completed at that time in the first century. And so the wonder of this beautiful, gleaming temple was just outside the city gates of Ephesus. Now, in the city itself, Ephesus also had a, a pretty well-known theater. It, was, it wasn't the largest theater in the Roman world, but it was pretty good size, about 25,000 seats. The Greeks built it, the Romans expanded it when they took over, and then another main structure in Ephesus was called the Agora, the Agora. We would call it the marketplace. There's a picture of some of the ancient ruins of the Agora in Ephesus. You could visit there today if you'd like. This structure was a triple archway into this vast marketplace, a marketplace where you could buy anything 
and I mean anything that the world had to offer, could be purchased in the Agora. It was uh, 100 yards by 100 yards, kind of like two football fields side by side. It was uh, the shopping mall of the world, if you will. So welcome to Ephesus. It wasn't just a, a couple of dusty streets with a few dozen homes and some goats and donkeys. In its day, Ephesus was a major city like Hong Kong or Tokyo or New York. And, and it's believed to have been the, the fourth largest city in all of the known world at that time. And by the way, in that city, in addition to those beautiful structures, there were, there were people People with problems, there were pickpockets and scam artists and prostitutes and people with bad tempers, binge drinkers, all of those folks and many more lived together there in Ephesus. All the ills that would come in an urban setting when you live in a broken world, they were present in Ephesus. And despite all those amazing architectural wonders in Ephesus, everything there was not good. Everything there was not beautiful. And so Paul arrived there in Ephesus somewhere around 53 AD, and he began talking about the grace of God in sending Jesus. The songs that Kathy picked today, did you see that theme of grace just flowing all through there? That was Paul's theme. The grace of God apparent and sent through Jesus. And so the Jesus movement gets formed in the region there around Ephesus. Paul spent a couple of years there preaching, teaching, raising up leaders, and then he left. <clears throat> and he left people who had new hearts. They knew Jesus now, but they were new hearts that still had some old habits. And so some of the people in the church were drifting back, back to the ways of the old life back to the vices of prostitution and anger, malicious gossip, and on and on the list could go. And so just a, a few years, a handful of years after Paul left Ephesus, he writes this letter to the group of Jesus followers that he'd left behind. And he gives them this refresher course in what it's meant to be a people of the way. That's what they called themselves in that time, the way. What does it mean to be a part of the people of the way. And so that refresher course is what we call the letter of Ephesians that we find in our New Testament scriptures today. Now, the book of Ephesians can be divided into pretty much two clear sections. Chapters one through three kind of feel one way, and chapters four through six feel totally different. In chapters four through six, Paul goes after some stuff. He goes after rage and he says, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. He goes after speech. He says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Only that which is helpful for building others up. He goes after sexual impurity. He goes after theft. Let him who steals don't stop, don't steal anymore. Get a job, work with your hands. He goes after falsehood, after deception. Each of you should speak truthfully to his neighbor, Paul writes. He writes all of this to the church people. And all of that happens in chapters four, five, and six. So what does Paul do in the first three chapters? Chapters one through three. Well, basically all he does in those chapters is he says, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember how God loves you. 
Remember how he poured out his mercy on you. Remember how he stepped into your life when you were spiritually dead and he gave you the CPR of the soul to revive you. Remember who you are. Remember how he brought Jewish and non-Jewish people together in one body called the church and that was so radical and so different at that time. He really, he doesn't tell them what to do for three chapters, which to me exhibits some pretty amazing uh, patience on Paul's part. If I, if I had gotten word that this movement that I started uh, and I heard there was theft and gossip and everything else going on, my letter would probably start off with, get your act together. What's wrong with you guys? But Paul doesn't do that. Rather, in the, in the first three chapters, he talks about identity. Identity. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Because often we behave the way we behave because we think the way we think. And so the way we think is pretty important, isn't it? You know, many people in our modern American culture, they find their identity in, in all kinds of things, don't they? A big one that people find their identity in is what they do. What's one of the first conversations when you meet a stranger? Oh, what do you do? What do you do for a living? What do you do? But if you're a, a mill worker or a tech worker or an office worker, you know, our, our identity should not hinge on what we do from nine to five. Our identity shouldn't hinge on the economy on what's going on, because that's a, a flimsy core for our identity to be, to be based upon. If being an employee is our identity, that's a big problem. Now, it could be a secondary identity, and that'd be fine, but it should not be our primary identity. What else do we find our identity in in our American culture? Well, there's all kinds of people that find their identity in their looks and what they look like, right? There are beautiful people all around us that fear aging, men and women who are afraid of turning 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever age that they might be turning. And we need to be careful about our primary identity being in our looks. You know, the proverb says that beauty is fleeting because it is. Our appearance should never be our primary identity because it just doesn't last. What else do people find their identity in? Many people find identity in their children or their grandchildren. It's another area where we easily make that our primary identity. And pretty soon we find ourselves wanting their approval. But dangerous things can happen when we make a child our core identity. So how do, you, how do you love a kid dearly and deeply while maintaining that you had an identity before that child came along? And you will certainly have an identity after that child leaves. How do we do that? See, the issue of identity is important for us to figure out. And so as we explore the, the first few verses in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, we're going to see that Paul did a very beautiful thing for these people living in and around Ephesus. And, and by the way, by extension, for us, for those of us who choose to follow the path of Christ. 
He uses some very rich imagery to help connect us with our identity as Christ followers, which must be our core identity. And so this morning, we're going to look at a few of the images that Paul used. And I'd like to begin by just reading the first three verses together with you. The words will be on the screen. So let's read this opening passage together. Ephesians 1, 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen. The word of God. So, here we are entering into Paul's big summary, if you will, of the gospel. Now, in our English text, verses 3 through 14, if you look at that in your, in your Bible, it's going to be a number of sentences and it's going to be divided up neatly. But in the original language, it's actually this huge, we call it a run-on sentence, 202 words, just Paul just goes and goes and goes. And it's like this epic love poem where Paul just can't stop gushing about the gospel and all the blessings in Christ Jesus. But it's in verse 3 that we find the summary statement for the whole thing. This is the good news of the gospel that we bless. That means we speak words of, of praise or worship or obedience or adoration. We bless God because he has blessed us. He has favored us in Christ with, as Paul writes, every spiritual blessing. And then Paul just begins to enumerate them, one after another after another. Paul says, before we get into anything else in this letter to the church at Ephesus, before we talk about any of those practical things like forgiveness or marriage or sex or relationships or the church or any of that, Paul says, I want you to get this key number one truth. You are spiritually blessed in Christ Jesus if you are a follower of him. You're blessed not a little bit. You're not blessed halfway. You're not blessed occasionally. You are blessed in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's a lot of blessings, isn't it? Now, our own American ancestors, we'd call them the Puritans, they, they used to talk about the gospel as a diamond. A diamond. If you hold a diamond up to the light, depending on how you twist it and turn it, isn't that a great looking diamond there? Look at that shine. However you turn it, it's going to shine and reflect in a whole host of different ways. You see, it's one diamond, isn't it? But many facets reflecting in different ways depending on how you look at it. And the same is true of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is one message, one truth, salvation by grace through faith in Christ. But there are so many aspects and dynamics and blessings that flow out of that. Sometimes we, we can get just so locked up on one part of it that we miss out on all the other blessings. Probably the one that we get locked on the most is forgiveness of sin. Now that's an awesome blessing. It's huge. It's a big deal. It's true. 
we could say amen, right? God forgives us of our sins. But there are so many other parts of the gospel that are just as true, just as beautiful, just as meaningful for our lives. And so Paul is going to continue in this passage spelling out these spiritual blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ, these different facets of the gospel diamond. Now, in, in this passage, there are eight specific blessings that Paul outlines. And, and it just, it feels like a lot. And that's because it is a lot. It is a lot. And we should feel overwhelmed because when understood rightly, God's love for us in Christ Jesus is overwhelming as we come to see how great the truth of the gospel is. And so here in this passage is everything that is true. True about you and me if we choose to follow Jesus Christ. If we trust in Christ, here are some of the key truths or blessings that we walk in. We're going to look at three right now. Next week we'll look at the rest. Blessing number one. Blessing number one, we are chosen by the Father. We're chosen Verses 1 through 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's the first part of verse 4. He chose us. Now, God has always existed. That's a mystery. It's kind of a mind-blowing mystery. God always has been. He has no beginning. He has no creator. He exists from eternity past to eternity future. He has always been, always is, always will be. And Paul says that at some point, before Genesis 1, when we understand the creation, before the creation of the heavens and earth, and all of that, that God did something. God made up his mind. He purposed his plan to bring together a people for himself. That has been God's plan all along, before the creation of time as we understand it. God, throughout time, by the way, has always had a chosen people that he has declared was, was his. You, you understand that? If we go all the way back to, to Genesis and in the beginning, this was true with those ancient people, people like Adam, Noah, Methuselah, Abraham, those what we call the patriarchs, God chose those individuals to represent him, to serve him, to be in unique relationship with him, to accomplish his purposes. Those were chosen people. And then later in the Old Testament, it is true with the people of Israel. God establishes this special covenant relationship with them that he would be their God and they would be his chosen people, this people group. And yet even then, even then, God's purposes and plans were bigger, bigger than one group of people, bigger than one nation. And so through the Israelites, a Messiah, we call him Jesus Christ, would come and he would gather together a new chosen people, this time not based on ethnicity or nationality, but based on spiritual identity through faith in Jesus Christ. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, that's you. That's me. We are God's chosen people. And friends, this is good news. Because if, if God says something is going to happen, guess what? It happens. God's never caught off guard. God never has been surprised. God has never had to call an emergency meeting to say, oh, what are we going to do about this? So when Paul says that we are chosen by God, he's not simply using some obscure theological term to, to de, for us to debate about or to divide over or to puff us up or for us to argue about. These are deep spiritual truths of God and they are meant to bring comfort to our souls if we follow God's plan and purpose. God chose you. And then you know what? He waits. He waits to see if you will choose him. God chose you, and he waits for you to choose him. God knows you, and he knows me. He knows our innermost being. He knows all of our brokenness, all of our sinfulness. He knows our joys. He knows our disappointments. He knows our triumphs. He knows our failures. He knows everything. And guess what? In his great kindness, he still wants you as his child. He chooses you. Friends, we are chosen. That is a great spiritual blessing. Let's look at a second blessing. Blessing number two, not only are we chosen, but we are holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. This is in verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, this is important. I want you to notice the language of the text here. It says that we should be holy and blameless. God does not choose us because we are holy and blameless. He chooses us to make us holy and blameless. We don't clean ourselves up to come to God. We come to him and he cleanses us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, some of us hear that God chose us, and, you know, that idea of choosing, kind of, we get flashbacks to maybe a fourth grade kickball on the playground. Remember that? Remember choosing up teams, and the, the two most athletic, studly guys would be out there, and they'd, I'll take him. I'll take her. I'll take him. And you're standing there. Am I going to get chosen? Maybe some of us think God chose me because he saw my wonderful kicking ability and my speed down the first baseline. God saw my potential, and so he chose me. Which means, if we're not careful, we can kind of get a little bit puffed up with pride about being chosen by God because he chose me because of my potential. But others of us, we're, we're kind of crushed with our inabilities. Sometimes we think, well, you know what? God must really regret picking me for his team. He only picked me because there wasn't anyone else left. I was the last one there. I'll take him. I guess she'll be on our team. Or maybe we feel like we're the, the last of the, uh, you know, the best of just the last few, the dregs. Oh, okay, we'll take Rob. No. But God is saying, God is telling us it has nothing to do with our potential or our lack of potential. It has everything to do with his power. 
He didn't choose us because of who we were before. He didn't choose us because of who we could become. He chose us because he wanted us for his glory. For his glory, that's why he chose us. He says, I will make you holy and blameless. And so friends, here's what God is doing. This is important for us to understand. When we become a Christian, in one sense, we are instantly holy and blameless. And in another sense, we're not. And we understand that, right? So here's what I mean. The moment that we put our faith in Christ, when we are born again, when we declare our allegiance to him as Lord and Savior, God declares us what we'll call positionally holy and blameless. You are holy and blameless. In that very moment, we have the righteousness of Christ applied to our lives. And God now sees us as he sees his son Jesus, which means as we stand before the the Father, we stand there as, say it with me, holy and blameless. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I hear sometimes Christians say, oh, when I get before God, I'm worried about what he's going to think of me. Oh my goodness. You are chosen. If you've accepted Jesus, if you've been born again, you are holy and blameless. That is your position. But then, here's what we, we need to understand as well. God then begins a process of teaching us, we'll just call it practical holiness, all right? which is learning to live out in action what is already declared as true by God himself, that we are holy and blameless before God. So God says, here's the spiritual blessing. I chose you when you were not holy and blameless to make you holy and blameless even while my Holy Spirit works in your life for you to become holy and blameless. We are chosen. We are holy and blameless. And then finally, a third and very important blessing and truth for us to understand. We are adopted. We are adopted. So let's consider the blessing of adoption. And to do that, I want to look at the image of adoption. As he's called the Ephesians to remember their true identity, Paul writes this in verse 5. He says, in love, he, that is God, predestined us for what? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Maybe your version even says in accordance with his good pleasure and will. You understand that? Because it makes God happy. Happy to do so, to choose us, to call us, to adopt us as his children. He wants to do that. What is our core, our primary identity? He adopted us. Do you understand that? If you've had a real connection with Jesus, you understand that you don't earn God's love. You can't earn God's love. Paul says that in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. So somehow what Christ did for us here on earth is the key to this adoption process. 
Now here's the image I want to use to help us understand this. You know, our tendency when we read a scripture, a passage of scripture like this, we see it through our 21st century American Western eyes, don't we? Rather than through first century Eastern eyes. And so I want for us to experience this passage, this concept of adoption, as, as people in and around Ephesus would have experienced it and understood it when they read Paul's letter. So in order to do that, I want you to do a little imagination thing with me, all right? So I want you to imagine that you are a first century Ephesian person, and we are visiting a theater in Miletus. This is about 20 miles south of Ephesus, a famous theater. The theater seats about 15,000 people. This is the television, the movies, the internet of the day, the entertainment that the Greek and the Roman people did. They went to the plays. They went to see the plays. And so here we are. We're attending a play. We walk in. We find our seat. And the play that day is entitled Oedipus Rex. Oedipus Rex. And it's about to begin there down on the stage floor. Now, the viewers already are familiar with the backstory to Oedipus Rex. The story is this. King Laius and Queen Jocasta of Thebes have been warned by an oracle that when they have a son, that he will cause grave damage to their family. And so King Laius takes his baby's feet and he pins them together. And then he abandons that baby in a field. A shepherd comes along and he finds that baby and he takes that baby home and he names him Oedipus, which means swollen feet because that baby's been laying out there in the open with his feet bound together, his feet swelled. Now, the part about King Laius abandoning his baby boy, that doesn't shock the audience at all. They understood this because child abandonment was common common in Roman culture. In Roman culture, when a baby was born, it was set at the father's feet. And the father would either pick, pick up that baby or he would turn his back on it and walk away, signaling he wants nothing to do with the child. Isn't that something? Maybe he wanted a boy and it's a girl. Maybe he wanted a girl and it's a boy. Maybe he detects some kind of defect or birthmark that displeases him. You see, rarely in Roman culture would the baby be killed. Instead, the child would just be exposed to the elements. And they believed that it was up to the gods to, to decide the fate of that child. Now, frequently a child would be taken to the agora, that marketplace we showed you a picture of a while back. And the baby would be abandoned there. Sometimes someone would come along and take the child home. And they would raise that child not with love and with care, but to be a slave or to be a prostitute. And so it was to this culture that Paul was writing when he talked about adoption. I want us to get the sense of this. And so when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says that in love, God adopted them, he's writing to an abandonment culture. They understand this. Many of the people in the church are slaves, they were abandoned as children, raised to be slaves. It's all they've ever known. He's writing to a culture where abandoned babies are just a routine. 
As I was researching, I read that outside the eastern gate of Ephesus, the, the edge that is opposite the theater and the harbor, there was a garbage dump where people would frequently bring babies that they didn't want. I also I learned that there was a physician uh, to the north of Ephesus in the city of Pergamum who had actually written a manual on how to measure the dimensions of a child that you come across and find to increase the odds of picking one that would turn out to be a strong slave. Isn't that sick? So given the culture, given the culture, the slave children considered themselves maybe the lucky ones. They didn't end up being a prostitute or they didn't end up just dying out there in the agora or in the dump. And so Paul writes to these people. He writes them and he says, if you've come to know Jesus, your most defining moment isn't who threw you out, but who took you in. He picked you. He picked you up. And he took you home. Wow. Anybody here ever been dumped? Been dumped maybe by a, a, a girlfriend, a fiance? Dumped by a spouse? Dumped by a parent or a kid who shut you out? Maybe you were dumped by an employer. Have you ever poured yourself into a relationship only to have the other person just kind of walk away or fade away or drift away? Doesn't feel very good, does it? Sometime back, a, a friend shared with me how his, his father left when he was just four years old. And in my friend's mind, he has burned into his memory his six-year-old brother, his older brother, hanging on his dad's ankles, wailing, begging, crying, trying to keep his dad from leaving. Can you imagine what that would be like? There are so many behavioral issues that Paul has to address in this letter. The Ephesians were slipping back into old patterns of sexual immorality. They weren't being consistent with people of the way. They were slipping into to gossipy patterns, and so they were inconsistent with people of the way. They, they were slipping back into theft and lying, and so they were inconsistent with being people of the way. But Paul puts all of that on hold to say, before I tell you how to behave, I need to just, for you just to be reminded that you belong your most defining moment is not who threw you out, but who brought you in. And so friends, if you have heard the whisper of God, if you have responded to the voice of Christ, you need to know something. He picked you. He picked you up. He brought you home. He adopted you. This is a critical image for us to have of our Heavenly Father. You see, we are all adopted. You know, there's a reason why Christians use the term a relationship with God or a relationship with Jesus. You see, there, there's something about being the precious, prized daughter or son of the Creator. Isn't that amazing? Your most defining moments in life are not what happened to you back here, but what the Father has done for you 
and what purpose he has for you going ahead. I want you to just, let's just start with a whisper. Say these words with me. He adopted me. He adopted me. Let's say it again louder. He adopted me. He adopted you and he adopted me. This is all Paul really says for the first three chapters. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. You know how crazy this is? Because of our sin and our rebellion and our ignorance and our apathy, we were an enemy of God without Jesus Christ. That's what Scripture teaches us. We were the enemy of the creator of this vast universe. And while that was still true, while we were his enemy, he chose and purposed not just to forgive you, not just to make you holy and blameless, but to bring you into his eternal family, to adopt you. Wow. I mean, we are not even halfway through the, the blessings that Paul lists here. But I hope that you are beginning to see how beautiful the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Our identity, should we choose to receive it, is powerful. It's beautiful, and it is full of hope. And so my prayer is that these words will comfort you, that they will encourage you as you seek to follow the path of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. And Father, we thank you for the hope that we have when we are reminded of the deep truths of our relationship with you. Guide us this day, Father, this week, this month, this year, Father, that we might pursue with strength and vigor the path that you have for us. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to, in just a moment, stand and sing a song together. And as is true each week, some of our elders will be in the corner. I see Randy is back there.